0: Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the, force, the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Let's pray. Father, I think of that line from the hymn we sang, His victory march continues till the day when every eye and heart will see Him. Lord, we are a victorious people this morning because we serve a victorious Lord. We are more than conquerors this morning because the Lord Jesus is a conqueror. He's ruling and reigning and ordering absolutely everything. There is no one worthy to open the books this morning but Him. But Him. And I think of that verse, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, Lord. And the only thing that I can think this morning is that You have Your people here, Lord. Your people here. We are weak, Lord. We are so weak in and of ourselves, much weaker than we even know. But by Your Spirit, by Your Spirit, amazing things can happen. Amazing things. I think of what it says there, not by might nor by power, but by My Spirit, says the Lord. And so, Lord, we ask this morning, on behalf of Your people, that You would come and You would strengthen us and make Your power perfect in weakness. In Jesus' name, Amen. Last week we considered the subject of preparing to stand. Preparing to stand. When you read through... Verses 14 through 17 of chapter 6 here, you notice a difference. And we saw that you notice a difference in the way in which Paul speaks about the first three pieces of armor versus the way he speaks about the last three pieces of armor. For the first three pieces of armor, he uses this word having, having, having girded your loins. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation or readiness of the gospel of peace. Paul assumes that long before this battle starts, these pieces of armor are going to be in place. These pieces are to be permanent fixtures in the Christian life. There is no time to be found without them. This is vitally important. This is very important permanent fixtures long before this battle starts. You need these three aspects in place to help you prepare to stand. And what are these three aspects? One, having on the belt of truth by committing our minds to the truth of God. Daily, daily, we must be reading the Word and meditating on the Scriptures and setting our minds to true. We must be able to say with the psalmist there in Psalm one nineteen, "I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything." That's that's comprehensive. That is very comprehensive. I esteem right. So I, I read I read the word and I'm setting my mind to true all your precepts concerning everything. Everything. There is nothing he found in the scripture. To where he did not read that and say, okay, that's the truth. I don't care what I feel. I don't care what people say. I don't care what everyone says. That's what's true. And that's how I'm going to live my life. That's the belt of truth. That's got to be in place before this battle starts. The second thing, having on the breastplate of righteousness by giving no place to the devil. We talked about in Ephesians chapter 4, two chapters earlier, Paul discussed this in detail. He had talked about renewing his mind, so putting on the belt of truth here. And then he goes into these exhortations on practical righteousness. And right in the middle of them he says, don't give the devil a place. Don't give the devil a place. We must be able to say with the Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of this world is coming. And He has nothing in me. Nothing in me. The devil scoured the life of Christ for 33 years, and he never once found a place. No places in our life. We must be walking in righteousness. And thirdly, having on shoes of readiness... Which are given by the gospel. We must live in a state of readiness, a state of alertness with this wartime mentality. And you remember, we spoke about King David, and the initial mistake that he made was while all the other kings went out to war, he was hanging back in Jerusalem. He wasn't in the fight. Wars were being fought and won or lost for the cause of God, and he was out of the fight. We need this Gospel-given readiness. Readiness. So these first three pieces are permanent fixtures. Permanent fixtures. And should be on long before the battle starts. But the battle will come. The battle will come. The battle comes daily. At least for me it does. It's going to come. And when the arrows begin to fly, there is more armor that you should take up. And to that Uh, we want to turn our attention today. So we've talked about how to prepare for this fight, these things that are in place, and now arrows are starting to zip across the battlefield, and we're going to take up more armor, more armor. Now before we talk about taking up this armor, I want to give some reminders, a few reminders about the nature of these attacks. The nature of the attacks that are going to come against you. The enemy is going to try and keep you from standing firm. But how is he going to do it? How is the enemy going to try and keep you from standing firm? What is his tactic? Or to use biblical language, what are his schemes? What are his schemes? The primary way that he is going to do this is through slander. Slander. The primary, primary way that he is going to do this, these schemes, the attacks, is through slander. Now, if we were reading Greek New Testaments this morning, which is the language that uh, the Bible was written in, Ephesians was written in Greek, translated to English, if we were reading the Greek New Testament, you would have already gotten that point. Simply because the word devil, or the name devil, is a transliteration. And it literally means slanderer. Slanderer. So every time you see the word devil in Scripture, all you're reading is the word slanderer. slanderer. And so you go back and you read verse 11 and it actually reads, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the slanderer. The slanderer one way or another, through words of a well-meaning friend or through thoughts put into your mind, there's a myriad of ways that this can happen. The devil is going to come to you and to try and sow doubts in your mind about God and turn your attention back on yourself. That's the design. That's the design. He wants to sow doubts in your mind about God and that can happen in a myriad of ways and he wants to turn your attention back on yourself, back on this lower sphere. That's what he's trying to do. Uh, and now I'm only going to briefly touch on some of these things this morning. If you want more comprehensive and a much better message on the subject, you can uh, listen to Charles's message. I would highly encourage you to do this called Our Adversary the slanderer, and you can actually find that on the podcast, sermon.net slash lake road. It was given on September the 7th, 2009. Um, excellent teaching, excellent message. That message saved my life when I heard it for the first time. Um, but we need to see this. We need to see that even in physical persecution, the problem is not so much what happens to them physically. The problem is the doubts that are sowed during this physical persecution. And the the thoughts that are sowed, I just need to give up. This is not worth it anymore. You read church history. You read people that go through these things and that's what happens. This physical persecution comes and that's not nearly as bad as the darkness that they go through from these thoughts that are coming into their mind. These thoughts that are coming into their mind. Let me just read you though just a couple of quotes from church history on this. Uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, uh, the book Pilgrim's Progress, is probably one of the most popular books in church history. Uh, It's an allegory of the Christian life. Listen to a section from this book. Now, this is written hundreds of years ago. One thing I would not let slip. I took notice that now poor Christian was so confounded that he did not know his own voice, and thus I perceived it. Just when he had come over against the mouth of the burning pit, one of the wicked ones got behind him and crept up softly to him and whisperingly suggested many grievous blasphemies to him, which he verily thought had proceeded from his own mind. Are you getting a picture? This demonic... This demon starts creeping up behind him and starts whispering these blasphemous suggestions and he's so confounded he thinks it's his own mind. He thinks he's having these thoughts and that they're originating from him. This put Christian more to it than anything he had met before, even to think he should now blaspheme him him that he loved so much before, yet if he could have helped it, he would not have done it. You know that. You've experienced that. You live that. You have this thought that just comes ripping through your mind and you're just, I, Lord, I don't want that thought. I don't want that thought. But he had not the discretion neither to stop his ears nor to know whence, from whence the blasphemies came. One more quote from Martin Lloyd Jones, a very well known, uh, well respected minister of the last century. He said this Do we not know something of what it is, perhaps, to wake up in the morning and to find that before we have had time to do any thinking, thoughts come to us? Evil thoughts, perhaps even blasphemous thoughts. You were not thinking, you were doing nothing. You had just awakened, but suddenly the darts reach you. It's important for us to realize this because it is a part of the enemy's strategy to prevent our understanding that he is the cause of this. He would have us believe that all these things originate in ourselves and then he persuades us that in consequence we must be very evil persons who have no right to be called Christians at all. And so He drives us down to the depths of despair and utter hopelessness about ourselves. Examples could be multiplied. I could read uh, quotes from church history all day long. This is a very, very well-recognized thing. What are they saying? It is possible to have thoughts put in your mind that are not your own. It is possible to have thoughts put in your mind that did not originate from you. All sorts of thoughts. There are some thoughts that kindle doubt, other thoughts that kindle lust, other thoughts that kindle greed, some thoughts that kindle animosity and division. There's all sorts of thoughts. There's a myriad of them that can be put into your mind that do not originate you. What he's trying to do is to drive this... He puts thoughts in your mind. He's trying to drive this wedge in And to fixate you on this lower realm. Fixate you on this lower realm. So you get into self pity and introspection and you start getting touchy and and you just don't feel good. You start feeling feeling lazy and you don't feel like pressing on. You start you're just getting turned more and more onto yourself and more and more onto this lower realm. Like I said, these darts will come in a million different ways, but that is the ultimate purpose. Why? to keep you from looking up to keep you from looking up because when you look up he is undone he's undone he's undone he wants to keep your attention on everything else but God and all that he is in he, he is for you in Christ in Christ so this battle will come And Lord willing, today, I want us to look at three aspects of standing firm when this battle comes. Three aspects of standing firm when this battle comes. And these correspond to these three last pieces of armor. Number one, I'm going to mention them briefly and then we'll talk about them some. Number one, you must take up the shield of faith by looking away from yourself to God. Take up the shield of faith by looking away from yourself and your circumstances to God two you must take up the sword of the spirit by standing firm on god's word and number three you must take up the helmet of salvation by fixing your eyes on the salvation yet to come taking up the helmet of salvation by fixing your eyes on the salvation yet to come. Uh, as a side note, you'll notice I took some liberty to deal with a shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, back to back, because they're very closely related. It is very hard to talk about faith and not to talk about the word, and it is very hard to talk about the word and not to talk about faith. You miss an ingredient in either one of them, and you don't have much at all. And so... We'll talk about those two, and then we'll talk about going on to put on the helmet of salvation. Number one, you must stand firm by looking away from yourself to God. By looking away from yourself and your circumstances to God. This is the shield of faith. Uh, A little background information, a little historical information. There are two types of shield in the first century in the Roman army. There was one shield, I believe it was circular, Um, it wasn't all that big, um, but there's a second shield that was big, it's almost like a door, right. so it's like you put a handle on a door and now this is my shield. That's the shield that we're talking about here, we're talking about a shield that gets the job done. Uh, You can hide behind this whole shield. And what they would do is the opponents of the Roman army, they would dip these arrows into pitch and light them. Um, And they would come streaking across the battlefield and hit these shields. And if you weren't careful, you got a wooden shield and a flaming arrow, you can have a real problem on your hands because it doesn't matter how big your shield is if you have to throw it down because it's on fire. So what they would do is they had leather on the front of these shields and they would soak these shields in water so that when these flaming arrows came streaking across the battlefields, they hit the shield and immediately they were extinguished. They were extinguished. That's the picture that you have here of this shield. It's not this little shield that you'd have to be pretty quick to grab an arrow on. It's like hiding behind a door, all right? This is a shield that gets the job done, gets the job done. Now, immediately, when we talk about the shield of faith, we're confronted with a problem. Because the first mention of our shield in the Bible is not faith at all. It's not faith at all. It's God. It's God. Do you remember in Genesis 15, God says this After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, I am thy shield. I am thy shield. So, what's our shield? Is our shield faith? Our faith? Is our, or is our shield God? I think the answer is, is that it is both. As long as you understand what faith is. Faith is. What is faith? What is real faith? See, sometimes we think of faith as kind of this, this big thing that we have. And you know there are groups that talk about turning loose their faith. And things along those lines. That that is about as far from a biblical definition of faith as you can get. I like what Bob Jennings said one time. He said, faith is a self-despairing look to Christ. Faith is a self-despairing look. Look to Christ. You can't brag if you have faith because all faith means is that I finally gave up on myself and my feelings and I am casting my life, the direction of my life, and absolutely everything else on all that God is for me in Christ Jesus. That's what faith is. And so all faith does is gets you in touch with the living God. You're giving up. You finally just give up and you rest Everything, everything on what God is for you in Christ Jesus. You're no longer operating based off of what you feel. Based off of what you feel. Your hope is fixed on Him. Uh, stories are fairly often told of pilots, airplane pilots, that get this thing called vertigo. I don't know what you, if you've ever heard that term before, but basically what it is, is it's, it's kind of a spatial disorientation. So what that means is, is you're flying in this plane and you feel like you're going up. You feel like the nose is pointed up and you are going straight up, but in reality, you're going straight down. You get disoriented. It's an inner ear type thing. Or you feel like you're turning left and the nose is pointed this way, but in reality, you may be pointed right and slightly down. It's a very, very dangerous thing. And actually, in 1999, um, John F. Kennedy Jr.'s plane crashed. I don't know if you remember that event. He crashed his plane over a body of water, and it was due to this phenomenon called vertigo. vertigo. And here's how another pilot described what happened when um, John F. Kennedy Jr. Jr. lost his orientation. This is what the pilot says about that. He says, by contrast... At the same moment, he was feeling perfectly right side up. The aircraft instruments, when correctly interpreted, conveyed the message, your wings are tilted steeply to the right level, the nose of this airplane is pointing way down, and your airspeed is already howling past the red line. Now, you don't have to know a ton about aviation to know that that sounds like that's bad news. That is bad news you feel like you're turning right side up you're actually turning to the right and you're headed down it's a spiral but he felt because of this inner ear deal he felt like he was sitting right side up listen to what this pilot says and here is the crux of the matter the pilot's emotions drowned out the flying the flight instruments And screamed out, no way, it can't be, I'm actually flying straight and level. I know it, I feel that it's true. I feel that it's true. That's what was going on. And despite the way that he felt, he's flying based off of feelings. Despite that, moments later, he crashes into the earth. He crashes into the earth. Why? Because when given a choice whether to trust these objective instruments or his subjective feelings, he chose his feelings. He chose his feelings. And do we not run the same danger, the same danger in the Christian life? You're going along and all of a sudden you feel a darkness about you. You start getting plagued with thoughts that... Um, You know, the only thing you've done is fail in the Christian life. And that God's not pleased with anything you do. And these just horrible doubts. And you, you feel like your sin is back on you. And you feel like God is just a million miles away. Do you see the arrow? That flaming arrow has created this feeling that doesn't correspond to reality. And at that moment when you're feeling some of those things that all you've ever done is fail, God doesn't love you, God's not pleased with you, and He's a million miles away, and all you are is full of sin, at that moment, you're going to have to make a choice. Are you going to live your life and base your reality off of your feelings or the instruments that God has given you? The instruments that God has given you. So what should you do? Will you follow the hymn writer? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. You don't spend your your time fixating on this lower realm with all of its circumstances and all these feelings that are raging back and forth. The hymn writer says, enough of it, enough of it. Upward, I look and see him there. When I get a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ, I can see reality. And that's my reality up there. That's what defines my reality. I am not defined by this lower realm. Come what may, feel how I might, it doesn't matter. My reality is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And you base your life off of that. Or you begin to have thoughts that God doesn't care about you because you don't have the same gifts. As some other Christians, you know, you're not, maybe you don't preach, you know, you're not writing any books, you don't have a, a big ministry, or, uh, you know, you're not somewhere over in the Congo and, you know, sweating to death trying to plant a church among the unreached, and so you start to have these subtle thoughts that, I, you know, I'm just insignificant. You know, it doesn't really matter. Those are the real super Christians that are doing all that. Those are the people that really please God, and I'm just kind of a sub-Christian, Sub-Christian, the only way I can really be all out for Christ is if I move to the Congo and try and plant an unreached church among an unreached people group over there. What do you do in that situation? You look up. You look up. You look up. Don't you see the way that He cares about you? You! Do you realize that God sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins so that he could spend eternity, eternity fellowshipping with housewives and construction workers and teachers and every other boring eight to five Christian. God sent his son because he wanted to spend eternity with you, with you despite what you may think about all these other things and how important they are. When you look up from these circumstances and you see the way that He looks at you, you see His love for you, it changes everything. It changes everything. The shield of faith. So when these arrows come with their chief design to turn your focus on yourself, your feeling, and your circumstances, take up the shield of faith by looking away. Look away. Number two. You must stand firm by standing on the Word of God. This is the sword of the Spirit. You must stand firm by standing on the Word of God. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Let's start reading in verse one. We're talking about here about standing on the word of God. Now the serp we're gonna start in verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate it. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate it. Do you see the issue at stake here? The slanderer comes and makes a direct assault on the truth of God's word. God says, You eat that fruit, you're going to die. The slanderer comes along and says, you eat that fruit, you're not going to die. God is holding out on you. And at this point, she has a choice. Am I going to stand on the word of God or am I going to believe some of these lies? Well, what did she do? She looked. She looked. Beloved... uh, I have found that oftentimes when the devil first comes to you with a temptation, he's not immediately trying to get you to jump straight off in this thing. All he wants to do is to get you to look. To get you to look. Because when you start looking, now you're out from under the authority of God's Word. And when He gets you in that place, you are done looking. This temptation comes and all of a sudden you start toying with the thought. What am I going to do here? You know, should I follow the Lord? Or, you know, this actually, this looks like it might be pleasing. So you start looking. You start, you you move out from under the authority of God's Word and you start examining the thing for yourself. Looking. Sin is not to be toyed with. Sinful thoughts are not to be toyed with. There is only one thing that thoughts that are contrary to this book are good for, and that is crucifixion. Crucifixion. We destroy every lofty thought that sets itself against the knowledge of God. We don't toy with sin. We kill it. We kill it. Immediately, when some thought or suggestion comes to you contrary to this book, slam the door. No discussion. I'm not looking... God has spoken. God has spoken. But she looked. And as the result of that look, the entire race of humanity fell. Fell. Looking. Toying with sin. Instead of standing on the word of God. Is this not exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did in contrast they're in this garden full of you know all of these wonders Christ is in a wilderness full of absolutely nothing and nothingness and the same these temptations that correspond to one another come along and Christ is out here 40 days and 40 nights with nothing and this tempt the tempter comes to him and starts making these suggestions just like he did to Eve in the garden but what did he do he starts quoting scripture it is written, and then he quotes a verse. It is written, and then he quotes a verse. It is written, and then he does it again. he 's standing on the word of God, he 's not toying with sin, he 's not considering the matter. Well, maybe you know, maybe it could be a good thing to turn stones into bread that you know who knows this might be god 's provision for me, or something like that. None of that, none of that. His mind was yoked to the word of God. God has spoken. End of discussion. Standing firm on God's Word. Uh, There are going to be times in the Christian life when these attacks come. And God, um, the Spirit, is going to help you through diligent study. And um, things like, uh, you know, you you come into this season where you can see these attacks are coming along this line. You're being tempted to lust. or You're being tempted to greed. Or you keep having these divisive thoughts about somebody in this congregation. If you don't think that that's demonic, you're totally misunderstanding Ephesians chapter 6. And all of church history is against you. The devil comes and tries to show divisive thoughts in members of bodies just like this. Just like this. And so you have the season where this thing is happening. So you open up a concordance or maybe you get out a Bible promise book and you start looking and say, what does the Bible say on this? And you're just putting swords in your sheath. Just, just loading up on swords. And then out of that, that big mountain of verses, the Spirit is probably going to especially bless two or th- three of those verses to you. And that's what He's going to use in your life to, to slay these things. But there are going to be other times when the battle is so fierce, so fierce, and it's gone on for so long that the spirit is going to supernaturally intervene in your life. And just like the devil is going to put thoughts in your body, the spirit is going to come put verses in your body. And all of a sudden, the very first thing you're going to know is there's this clash of metal in your minds. And this verse comes zipping straight through. Let me let me just there are so many stories. I actually had to edit some of these out because we'd have been here for a while. But there's so many encouraging stories of people just getting beat down totally. And right when you think they just can't get any lower, all of a sudden this verse comes zipping through their mind and they look down and they've got a sword in their hand. Let me read you some of these. Darlene Rose was a missionary who lived in the Japanese prison camp for four years. Um, during that time, she was separated physically from her husband, who was in another camp, and one day she received the devastating news that her husband had died three months prior to that time, And she was devastated. She was devastated. She writes this: "It was one of those moments when I felt that the Lord had left me. He had forsaken me. My whole world fell apart. In the anguish of my soul I looked up, my Lord my Lord was there, and I cried out, But God, but God immediately Isaiah forty three two was given to her. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow. She had not meditated on this. She had not been, you know, read that in her quiet time this morning. Just immediately, this verse comes flying into her mind, and she looks down in the depths of despair, and now she's holding a sword. Now she's holding a sword, and she can stand on that truth to take her through this storm. Wang Mingdao was a Chinese leader uh, of the last century. Uh, He was put in jail for preaching. This was back earlier in the last century uh, in China. He was put in jail for standing on the truth. He was a very prominent leader during that time. And day and night in this cell, they begin to wear him down through ceaseless propaganda and horrid physical conditions and they're just wearing him down wearing him down wearing him down and eventually he finally broke when he found out that his wife who was in another prison was desperately sick and if she didn't get released and get medical treatment she was going to die and so in a moment of weakness just after months of of this kind of treatment he finally signed these papers that recanted the things that he he had preached Uh, He denied the Lord. He denied the Lord. But it devastated him. It devastated him. He gets out of prison, and he is literally almost going insane. People said they would see him walk in the streets saying, I am Peter. I am Peter. Talking about the denial of Christ. And even, I am Judas. I am Judas. I mean... (laughs) Abject depression. I mean, that is low. He is absolutely losing his mind. Finally, he couldn't handle it anymore. He couldn't handle it. So he goes back to him and says, I, I am a Christian. I still believe everything I preached. I guess you're just going to have to put my wife and I back in jail. So they go back in jail, but the darkness simply would not lift. And he is just in despair beyond recognition. He says this, that is, until one day Micah 6, eight filtered into his mind. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case. Now he had a sword in his hand. And that truth took him straight through. He says this later on in his biography. It was the Word of God that gave me (laughs) the very best moment of my life when I overcame my lies. If it were not for God's protection, I would be dead by now. But it was the Word of God that rescued me. A sword. A sword. All of hell can be standing on your doorstep, but if you've got one verse, one verse, you can stand against them. You can stand against them. One more Spurgeon, and this is a quote. A little bit of background. Siri Music Hall. Spurgeon was preaching there one time, and the balcony caved in. So many people were crowding around that wanted to hear him. The balcony fell in, and people died. It was um, chaos ensued. Um, You know, people are getting trampled and things like that. It was just an awful situation. It just took him deep into a depression. He says this, To the lot of few does it fall to pass through such a... Such a horror of great darkness as that which fell upon me after the deplorable accident at the Surrey Music Hall. I was pressed beyond measure and out of bounds with an enormous weight of misery. The tumult, the panic, the deaths were day and night before me and made my life a burden. From that dream of horror, I was awakened in a moment by the gracious application to my soul of the text. Him hath the fa- God the Father exalted. Now, how many of you would have thought, yeah, that verse right there would just bring you out of abject depression. <laughs> yeah, that, I would, that's the one I would go to. Listen to why it took him out. The fact that Jesus is still great, let his servants suffer as they may, piloted me back to common reason. And so basically... God gives Spurgeon this text. He's holding his sword and he says, wait a second, okay, let's just grant that I'm totally responsible for the whole thing. Who cares? Jesus is still exalted. He's still on His throne. Let's just grant that I'm a total failure and that I don't ever do anything right. I don't care because He's great and He's wonderful and I'm way down here and He's way up there so I can't pollute Him with any of my circumstances. That's how you get out. Him hath the Father... Greatly exalted. Now he's holding a sword in his hand. Beloved, we must be rich in the Word. Rich in the Word. Know the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Meditate on the Bible. Meditate on the Bible. Be rich in the Word. So a summary of where we've come so far. When the battle comes, we must, we must stand firm by looking away from ourselves to God and then holding fast to His Word. And finally, number three, you must, fix, you must stand firm by fixing your hope on our coming salvation. This is, the, this is the helmet of salvation. There are going to be times in the Christian life when wave after wave after wave of these darts come and it seems like there's never going to be an end. There are going to be times in the Christian life when the devil knows that he's not going to be able to get to you just by throwing one or two of these darts. The only way he's going to be able to get to you is literally by wearing you out. Wearing you out. There are seasons in the Christian life when you have just dealt with so much oppression and you feel like so much is on you and you've just been fighting and fighting and fighting. Finally, you start to get worn out and you just want to lay down. You just want to take a break from the battle and somehow... Just get out of this fight. Get out of this fight. And it's at that moment, at that moment, you must take up the helmet of salvation. By salvation here, I don't think he is primarily talking about what you already have in Christ. In other words, you have been saved. I think the primary emphasis of this verse is the salvation yet future like Romans 5 says you will be saved. Amazing, there are a ton of verses like that where Paul is writing to Christians and he puts salvation in the future tense, you will be saved. And the reason why I say this is because the corresponding verse in 1 Thessalonians 5:8, Paul says the helmet of the hope of salvation. The helmet of the hope of salvation. And this is a truth that has fallen off the face of the earth in our theology. We just don't think about it as much as people have thought about it in church history. I think what happened is some wild-eyed, chart-creating people came on the scene with all their silly ideas about what's going to happen at the end of time. And then we saw that and we said, I don't want to have anything to do with that right there, so I'll just go over here and talk about justification for a while. Well, justification is a wonderful thing to talk about, and so is regeneration, and so is all of these other doctrines. But when you read the New Testament, you come away with the fact that this emphasis on salvation yet yet future, what the, the apostles called the blessed hope, was a major emphasis in the New Testament. They were constantly talking about, He's coming back, He's not going to leave me here. We're fighting hard right now. Persecution's here, but only a few more days and my Lord will come for me. That's what took them through. That was a major emphasis in the New Testament. Let me just read you a couple of verses. Paul writes in Romans, Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Do you ever think in those terms? You wake up this morning, stretch your arms, salvation's closer. Salvation's closer. You get done with today, we walk out of the meeting, salvation's closer. Salvation's closer. That's the way the apostle was living. It's coming. I'm a step closer. I'm a day closer. I'm a week closer. Salvation is nearer than when we first believe. Paul sums up the Christian life in terms of, quote, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Titus 2.13. Again in Philippians 3.20, Paul says this, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. Do you have that sense of expectation? Is there anything in your walk with the Lord where you can talk about eagerly awaiting the second coming of Christ. Do you have any, even a remote sense that you're eagerly awaiting the second coming of Jesus Christ? I think we've let people rob us of this doctrine. And it's not just confined to Paul. Peter writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. Greatly rejoice. This salvation ready to be revealed, this inheritance that's laid up for us, he says again, in, um, right after that, in 1 Peter 1.13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope completely. Leave no hope back here. Fix it completely on the second coming. On the second coming. Even Jude, in his short epistle, mentions this theme. There's 21 verses, and in the 21st verse, he says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. These people breathed the air of eternity. They had their eyes fixed in two spots. One was the cross, where Christ started the work. And two was the second coming, where Christ would come and finish the work. And this is not just a theme that's big in the New Testament. It's all through church history. You read Jonathan Edwards, and most people only know that one sermon "Sinners in the hands of an angry God. But if you read even a little bit more than that sermon, you find that he thought so much about heaven. He thought so much about heaven. And that thought of heaven and this blessed hope, and my salvation is not yet here, but it's coming. It's certain. The rest of it's going to be here. That molded and shaped his life. It's not just in the theologians. It's also in the hymn writers. Uh, Let me read you a couple here. Here's one. Just a little short stanza. Long thine exiles have been pining, far from rest and home and thee, But in heavenly vestures shining, they, their loving Lord, shall see. Christ is coming. Haste the joyous jubilee. With that blessed hope before us, let our joyful songs be sung. Let the mighty Advent chorus onward roll from tongue to tongue. Christ is coming. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly come. One more from a different hymn writer. Now redemption long expected, see in solemn pomp appear, all his saints by man rejected, now shall meet him in the air. Hallelujah, see the day of God appear. Yea, amen, let all adore thee, high on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory, claim the kingdom for thy own. O come quickly, hallelujah, come Lord, come. Do you feel the emphasis of these men and these women? Do you feel the emphasis of the New Testament writers? Christ is coming. Salvation is not yet fully here. Yes, I already have so much in Christ, but more is coming. And one day the Lord Jesus is going to come and take me up to Himself and I'm going to be far away where these darts can no longer reach me. And I'm looking at that day and I'm going to fight until he comes back. What is the exhortation then? Luke twenty-one twenty-eight. Lift up your heads. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Lift up your heads. Lift up your heads. In closing, let's summarize today's message. When the battle comes, there are three aspects to standing firm. Number one, take the shield of faith by looking away from yourself and your circumstances and your feelings and fixating yourself on all that God is for you in Christ. Put your faith in Him. Put your faith in Him. He defines your reality. Number two, take up the Spirit-given Word of God by standing firm on His Word. Standing firm on the Word of God. And number three, when the battle makes you weary and you're ready to quit, take the helmet of salvation by fixing your hope on the coming glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord that You would come and make Your Word real to us. Not, not just today or this afternoon, but tomorrow morning and Wednesday night and, and Friday and this weekend. Lord, You would make Your Word and these truths of Your Word real to us and we would walk in them. In Christ's name, Amen.